Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is concluding our series on the church. Now, if you're looking for a church, we would love for you to come and worship with us at Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you have questions, you can reach us through the phone at 479-442-4634 or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Now again, Pastor Kirk is finishing up a series on the church with a message entitled, The Church You've Always Wanted. Today's message is taken from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Let's listen together. Well, for about 16 weeks now, uh, we have followed the theme, the Church of Christ. And of course, we're not talking about a denomination. We're talking about what is the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And over these 16 weeks since last August, we have talked about what the church is, thinking about some of the various metaphors for the church, a body, a family, a building, the bride of Christ. We talked about where the church began, and among many Baptists, that's a very heated discussion. Uh, So rather than it being okay during the life of ministry of Jesus Christ or on the day of Pentecost, uh, I went ahead and um, threw caution to the wind and told you what I thought, that I believe that the church began in the Garden of Eden and that the church is identified and is expressed as God's people in the world, the assembled people of God. And initially that was a couple. It grew into a family. Then it was expressed as a nation of people. And in all of those examples, there was a failure to be the worshiping community of God in the world. And so finally, God sent his own son to become the perfect servant to fulfill everything that the nation of Israel and the descendants of Abraham never did. And so Jesus comes along as a perfect expression, and since his ministry, we have the church as we know it today in local assemblies like this right here. Uh, We talked about what the church does, that first and foremost, the church is here to be a community of worshipers in the world. That's why it was so troublesome, and it brought about such uh, a... justice from God and such judgment from God when his people worshiped false idols uh, in the Old Testament. We are to be uh, a worshiping community and we also have a mission and that is to make disciples, to go into all the world and share that gospel, make disciples. And we talked for several weeks about what is the true mark of those that are the true people of God. For in all of these expressions of God's people, whether it was a family, a nation, or churches as we know it today, we recognize that in every assembly or group of people who claim to be followers of Christ, there are false uh, followers. There are those who are pretenders. There are those who are not truly born again, that the true church will only be known and identified in our sight 
when we've been called out of this world and we are in the very presence of the Lord. That faith is what separates the real people of God from others that are just pretenders or that are just um, those that are hangers-on. And so the question for you is, are you a person of true faith in Christ? Have you recognized fully your sin and your inability to do anything to save yourself? That you offer nothing to God except your faith and your belief and your trust that Jesus has paid the price. Now, along the way, as is my habit, uh, we have identified some key truths. And you have probably written some of these down. Well, I'm going to mention them faster than you'll be able to, uh, to write them down this morning. But let me mention just a few of the key truths we focused on along the way. Number one, the church did not create the gospel. The gospel created the church. The true church is not a man-made religion. The Bible is not a man-made, man-originated um, book. Instead, it is the gospel that is making us, not the church making the gospel. Key truth number two, God's purpose for mankind is to raise up a worshiping community. People who will live for his honor and glory, this community is the church. Key truth number three, as we've already mentioned, the true church of Christ is comprised only of those who have put faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And in order to identify what real faith is versus just, you know, pie in the sky when I die kind of an idea, faith is a trust which produces obedience. We talked about that all the way through Hebrews chapter 11. Key truth number four. The New Testament is clear that church membership is not an option for the Christ follower. We live in a day of great independence, uh, of not just personal faith, which is a Bible teaching. In order to be saved, you have to have a personal faith. But many people today want to have a private faith. They don't want to be a part of a church. But understand, there are no free agents or independent contractors when it comes to God's plan for his people. God saved us from our sin. He saved us into his family. And he saved us for his glory. There's people that will often say to us, you know, you don't have to be uh, or go to church to be a Christian. And that is true. But I want to suggest to you, you don't have to go home in order to be married as a husband or wife but I wouldn't advise it for a healthy marriage, right? You need to go home. And for uh, those of us who are Christ followers, home is the assembly of the church. Key truth number five, the weekly worship hour of the church is the most important hour of our lives every week. Don't trade it away for something that is worldly, something that is temporal, something that is passing away. Every time you miss the worship of God's people, besides the fact of being ill or unable to attend, understand whatever it is that you're spending that time doing, you're trading away something eternal for something temporary. Key truth number six, 
God measures the church by the attributes of faith, love, and hope. He doesn't care how big we get. He doesn't care how much busyness we have. What he cares about is faith, love, and hope. That's what he wants to see us grow in. The one another commands of Scripture, some 26 or 28 of them, are what grows faith, love, and hope. And then key truth number seven. The early Christians and their leaders were gospel-shaped people. Gospel-shaped people. In other words, the gospel wasn't just something to believe in so that I won't go to hell and I'll be able to go to heaven when I die. The gospel was a way of life. They were shaped by the gospel. And for that reason, what was said as a complaint about them, not a compliment, turned out to be one of the greatest compliments ever paid to the church in the book of Acts when it was said of these missionaries, Paul and his companions, when they came to Thessalonica and their enemies said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here. Oh, that people would say that about Calvary Baptist Church. They have turned our world upside down. These gospel-shaped people took their mission very seriously. They saw the church as a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. They saw the ministry of Christ and the mission of Christ more like a battleship than a cruise ship. At the risk of life and limb, they shared the gospel wherever they went. You might say, to quote an old song, they were willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. And that's the mission of the church. Now, an example of that is where we have been the last two weeks in Acts chapter 16 as we read about the conversion of three people in this city, this Roman colony named Philippi. Paul had not intended to go there, but by providence, God got him there. And by getting him there, the gospel came to Europe for the first time out of Asia where the ministry had been confined for all the days of the spread uh, of the gospel in the book of Acts. Now it came to Europe and Paul uh, led three people to the Lord, three very unlikely people. There was a businesswoman, a very determined businesswoman by the name of Lydia. There was a demonized teenage girl. And there was a dangerous jailer working for Rome. And we read about the conversion of all three of those people. Not a very promising start for a local church. Not a very um, encouraging start for a church. But God does the unexpected, right? God does what seems to be impossible. He takes these three converts and he builds a great church. In fact, from the tone of Paul's words, when he writes to them, 10 years later, the book of Philippians, a short four-chapter letter, 
Philippi may very well have been Paul's favorite congregation in all the places he planted churches. You don't find him when writing to the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Galatians, the Colossians, and others. You don't find him using the kind of of heartfelt language as you find in the book of Philippians. So I want us to look at part of the first chapter of Philippians as a way of drawing this series to a close uh, for now. Um, but uh, when you find these words, I, I find it interesting that, that Paul is writing to them some 10 years after he first came to Philippi. Now he is in a Roman prison. This is one of the prison epistles. He's writing to them from his confinement in the capital of the empire. And he writes to them after 10 years, and we find that so much has gone on in this church, and we find how it's grown into a, um, again, the kind of church you've always wanted. And that's why I title this message with those words. By the way, I just want to say this to you. This next spring will mark my 10th anniversary here as your pastor. Several of the heartfelt things Paul had to say to this congregation just spoke to my heart this week because they express feelings that I have for you as well. Now, I love this book of Philippians. Before we read scripture, let me tell you a few reasons why. It is a book of joy and rejoicing. Those words are mentioned a dozen times in these four chapters. Joy, rejoicing. It has more coffee cup verses than any other book of the New Testament. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was gained to me, I counted loss for Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But my God shall supply all your riches in glory according to all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. All of these verses you find on coffee cups in the Christian bookstore are found in this book. And I like it for that reason, but I like it for another reason more than any other. It gives us the best summary of the Humility of Christ, of just what Jesus was willing to lay aside in order to provide salvation for you and me. And beloved, now that's for another day. So, as we're wrapping up this study, Paul's letter to the Philippians, his affection for them, my affection for you, let me just leave you with this key truth before we read. The greatest and best foundation for a unity in a church is the fellowship of the gospel. That's our key truth for today. 
that the best foundation for unity in a church is the fellowship of the gospel. Trying to build a church and fellowship around demographics, people's age, economic status, race, or whatever, or style of music, ministry, methods, or any other type of personal preference. Trying to build a church around your personal preferences or mine is destined to fail. It may work for a business, it may work for your club, but it is death for a church. That foundation will not withstand the attacks of a vicious enemy named Satan. Can you imagine Paul trying to plant a church using our modern day methods with Lydia, a formerly demon-possessed teenager, and a burly, rough-and-tumble jailer? What in the world can you put together that would make that church work? Nothing but the gospel would work. And so that's why we find in chapter 1, Paul talking about the fellowship of the gospel. The fellowship that is created by the gospel's work in your life and my life. I'm going to share three points. I'll read the scripture along the way in three parts. First of all, Paul says, I have you in my mind. I have you in my mind. Willie Nelson was not the first one to sing the song, You Have Always Been On My Mind. Understand, Paul is saying that long before Willie for much more noble and godly reasons. Paul is saying to this congregation, I have you in my mind. Follow along beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. We'll pause right there while I bring just a few things to your attention. Notice in verse 1, he refers to servants and saints. We are your servants, I, Paul, and Timothy, and we're writing to you saints there at Philippi. But understand, beloved, if you're a child of God, we are all servants and saints, are we not? Saints first, because to be the right kind of servant with the right kind of heart, you've got to know the Lord. Now, I know that sometimes we use that term saint. Oh, you know, old sister so-and-so, she is such a saint. Well, I want to tell you what, that little out-of-control teenager that doesn't know what he's doing next, if he's saved, he's just as much a saint as old sister so-and-so is. A saint is a child of God. You are called that over and over in 
Scripture, and so am I. And so our job in ministry is to grow as saints into faithful servants who can serve the church and the world around us. Now, there's two other words used in verse 1, overseers and deacons. The two offices of the church. We did not spend a whole Sunday talking about the leaders of the church, but we find and we discover in the New Testament that basically there's two categories of leaders. There are those who are overseers, sometimes called overseers, sometimes called pastors, sometimes called shepherds, oftentimes called elders. They are the same position. Three different words for the pastors of the church and deacons. We understand that here at Calvary, we refer to them as shepherd leaders. Our shepherd leaders are elders. They are pastors alongside Pastor Dan and myself. They have not been called, at least thus far, to vocational ministry. And I hope they never are because that would just mess up a good elder. I don't want to see that happen to you, Brother David. But they are, they are elders and leaders. And, and the difference between the overseers and the deacons, between the pastors and, and the uh, deacons, uh, the qualifications are almost identical in Scripture except that elders are required to have an ability to teach the Word to the people of God. Now, it doesn't mean deacons cannot Stephen certainly, one of the first deacons, was a great preacher and teacher, but it means that they don't have to be able to as deacons. So you have, you have shepherd leaders, and deacons might be referred to as servant leaders. They are both servants, but they are the two categories of leadership in the church. And understand this, because we've had it wrong for years and years and years in Baptist churches. Never do you find a letter being addressed to by Paul. Never do you find him referring to an elder in the singular. It's always plural. Always. And there is a safety in that. There's a blessing in that. So overseers and deacons to go any further will be for another time. Verse 2. He says, grace and peace to you. Did you know that's Paul's favorite greeting, every letter he writes? In 13 epistles, Paul begins by saying, grace and peace to you people. Whether it's in Colossae, Ephesus, or anywhere else, Thessalonica, grace and peace. And then he says that I have you in my remembrance. This is verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And he goes down and talks about joy. He's going to, his remembrance brings him joy. He makes a prayer with joy on behalf of these people. Again, joy and rejoicing, a major theme in Philippians. By the way, do you know what the difference between joy and happiness is? You ever thought about that? We always say to, to our kids uh, when they're about to get married, well, I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. 
And I know that oftentimes we mean the same thing, but I'm going to tell you, there's a world of difference between happiness and joy. Happiness comes when the outside circumstances turn out the way we want them to. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. Let me just go ahead and say I'm a very worldly man. But I was a happy man last night. (laughs) When the Razorbacks beat the living snot out of Ole Miss. I told you I was worldly, but it made me really happy. Had that game gone the other way, I wouldn't have been happy. But it would not have robbed me of my joy. Because joy is not something where outside circumstances turn out our way. And so it makes it, that comes and goes with the weather. Happiness is is a shallow imitation. Don't pursue happiness in this life. Pursue joy because joy, as the Bible talks about it, doesn't work from the outside in. It works from the inside out. And only God can give you a heart that is right with him and you have the resultant joy that comes from that. A joy that springs up like a like an artesian well to overflowing. That is the greatest attraction of of the gospel in people's lives. Did you know that there's no ministry we can create? There's no number of people that we can accumulate. There's nothing we as a church can do in order to make the gospel look good to the world if it's not coming from your heart And if it's not resulting in joy in your face, in your words, in your actions, that is the irresistible attraction of the gospel. These people were gospel-shaped people, and it resulted in joy. So he comments that, that he remembers them and he prays for them with joy. And it is all based on this partnership in the gospel. That is verse Five, because of your partnership in the gospel. This word is fellowship, your fellowship. You know what fellowship means? It's two fellows in the same ship, right? Isn't that what it is? The fellowship of the gospel, what we have in common, what we are, a common motivation. It is a oneness. It is a sharing of souls. These people were one in their service to God and in their spread of the gospel. And then he gives this great promise. I'm convinced, this is verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. God is not finished with you yet. He's working on you. He's working in you so that he can work through you. And listen, when God is through with you, you're going to know it. You know how you're going to know it? Because you're going to be ushered right into his presence. When you wake up and see Jesus Christ, you know that God's through with you here. Until then, if you wake up and you're still alive, still here, understand that God still is doing a work on you and in you so that he can work through you. Now listen, there's a principle here and it is this. And we need to believe this as a church. We need to believe this 
as a church. That my best days for me personally in serving God, your best days personally, our best days corporately are before us. They are not behind us. Friends, listen to me. If Calvary Baptist Church's best days are behind us, we need to turn all the heat down, lock up the doors when we walk out today, and never come back. That is one of the first signs of a dying church. When thinking about their best days, they're doing this. Looking back and remembering when. It is good to remember but to remember the lessons we've learned, to remember how faithful God has been, and let that be a launching pad for what is the future, for what God still has for us, for God, what God wants to do for us. I was visiting in the hospital room of one of our members last night, about 9.30, 9.45. And you know what she said to me? She said, I believe the best days for Calvary Baptist Church are still to come. That blessed me. That blessed me to hear that. So Paul says, I have you in my mind. But notice secondly, he says, I have you in my heart. Verse 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I have you not only in my mind, not only in my thoughts, but I have you in my heart. Now, let me tell you how he puts this and frames this in words. In verse, was it verse 4 or 5? We just read it a moment ago where he said, I think it was verse, um, uh, verse, yeah, verse 4, that we are partners in ministry, that we are, there is the fellowship of the gospel. You are partners with me. But now he says, and he changes the word, not to just partner, but to partakers with me. We are not only partners together, we are partakers together. Uh, partnership means fellowship, it's koinonia. But the word here, partaker, means to be a co-participant, a co-partner in service. Paul is saying, wherever I go, even here in this Roman prison, guess what? You are not just somebody that we share a fellowship together, but you are a partner with me. It is as though you are here with me. Wherever I go, every sermon I preach, every letter I write, understand uh, uh, church there at Philippi, you are a part of that with me. It is our ministry together. And he says, for that reason, I yearn for you all. That means to desire earnestly, to have a strong bent to love. But I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus. I yearn for you. I desire earnestly you. But I do so with the love of Jesus. 
What kind of love is that? It's agape love, is it not? It is a love that sacrifices itself. It is a love that's willing to give itself away. It's a love that doesn't say, I love you because you do this or that. It's not a love that says, I love you if you'll do this or that. It's a love that just says, I love you, period. I choose to love you. I sacrifice myself for you. That's the way Jesus loves us. And Paul says, I yearn, I earnestly desire you people there at Philippi. You don't find him saying those words to anybody else in the New Testament. I earnestly desire you people with the love of Jesus Christ. It is as though he would be saying, if I ever get out of this prison, if I ever get to go anywhere else in the ministry, I want to make a beeline back to Philippi. I want to be with you. I want to see that jailer once again and see what kind of man of God he's grown into. I want to see that young girl that was demon-possessed, see how she is serving God now. See what Lydia has done with her faith. Does the church still meet in her home or has it outgrown that place? I have you in my heart. Number three, I have you in my prayers. Verse 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. That's almost a, almost a doxology of praise, is it not? Him saying how he prays for these people. Verse 4, he, if you remember back, he said, I'm making my prayer for you with joy. So he is praying joyfully for these people. But notice what he said in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Love is the ultimate fruit of the Spirit. It is the ultimate expression of what it means to be a child of God. It is an indispensable quality for the people of God and the church of God. It is the ultimate fruit of the Spirit. And he said, I pray that your love may abound, that means to go over and above, to increase and advance in full sufficiency and abundance. And he said, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with what? With knowledge and discernment. This is not an emotional prayer. This is not the kind of emotions that there are people that you just love because your, you know, your personality really clicks with them. Again, the Lord puts churches together with people that would never be gathered together in any other context in the world. There is no common interest. There is no common club. There is no motivation that would bring this people right here in this room this morning together other than what God is doing in our lives. 
and that our love, he says, would grow with knowledge and discernment. It's not a, an emotional type love. It is a love of perception and insight. That you're growing in the Lord in knowledge and discernment of his word. And guess what? As men or women get together in faithful men and faithful women and they read some common books and work through some common passages of scripture and talk about those things. Understand, that is what it means to grow in love, in discernment, and in knowledge. And when you do that in Sunday school, it's the same thing. Or your life group, it is to grow in knowledge and discernment. By the way, the last faithful women meeting of the year taking place tomorrow night, right, Tony? Ladies, remember that. This is the last one for this year. Men, it's the next Monday night, okay? So you remember those meetings. He's praying that they would grow in knowledge and discernment, that you would do what? That you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's saying that we might grow in our maturity, that we might grow in our righteousness and our blameless lifestyles until the coming of Christ, that we will finish strong, that we won't fade, that we won't shrink down and shrink back. Did you know that so many People of God's word don't finish strong. So many Christians you know don't finish strong. If you've been around here for any length of time, you know people right now, they'll come to mind, their faces, their names. They used to be faithful servants of the Lord, but they are nowhere to be found today. You know that. Don't become one of them. Don't become a casualty. Keep growing till the coming of Christ, that you will finish strong and faithful. You see, many people get hurt along the way. They get disappointed along the way, and their heart begins to harden. And when it begins to harden, it begins to shrink. Very many people that profess Christ, older and later in life, they die with a very shrunken, hard, small heart. Instead, if we die of anything, which you will have to, by the way, we need to die with enlarged hearts, every one of us. Now, don't medically try to pick me apart my words here, but our hearts, as we walk with Christ, need to get bigger and bigger and bigger every year, every day, until God calls us home. And that we would be filled, he said, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now close up your Bibles and look right this way as I close this out. Those words in verse 11 that you and I would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Listen, folks. The ultimate motivation for you and me and the ultimate goal for you and me. Listen to me now. Follow me. Up here. Up here. Up here. Should be that we will be faithful and that we will be fruitful 
until God calls us home. Faithfulness and fruitfulness. It's not an either or in the economy of God. It's not one or the other. Many times, churches today that have long since lost their vision and commitment to ministry, that quit believing their best days are before them, that God is still at work in them, that God is still working through them. Churches that look over their shoulder and think that their best years are behind them, not before them, oftentimes what they cling on to in their expression of faithfulness, they become more like museums than hospitals. And they, in an attempt to be faithful, hang on to what they've always believed and what they've always done. And they've said, okay, we're going to hang on till Jesus comes. And they think faithfulness is to never be willing to change or grow or move forward, whatever it costs them. But I want to tell you something. That's not faithfulness. That's selfishness. That's stinginess. That's self-centeredness. That dishonors Christ, who was willing to empty himself and to follow his Father's will all the way to the cross and beyond. Now, in contrast, there are other churches that appear to have a lot of fruit. They've got numbers. They've got excitement. They've got lots of activity and lots of busyness. And I'm thankful for those churches that are doing it the right way. But oftentimes, there are some who are not faithful to God's word, to his eternal truths. They've watered down the message and replaced true repentance with results. And they've said, look at our fruit but I'm going to tell you, that's not real fruit either. You can't have one without the other. Both are equally important to God. He wants us to be faithful and to be fruitful. Understanding that we can't generate the fruit, but as we are faithful and follow God and obey God and sacrifice ourselves and live by joy, God will use that to produce fruit in our lives. The Philippian church was a faithful and fruitful church. May Calvary Church be the same. May Calvary Church be the same. One last time for now. Let's read Galatians 6, 19 and 20 together out loud. Will you read it with me? And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message of Paul to the Philippians. May it be an inspiration to us as well. And help us to remember that not only did Paul have these feelings for this church, but you have them for us. We are in your thoughts. We are in your 
heart. We are in your prayers on our behalf. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.